Hello, welcome to Horror Culture Shiver, the show that discusses all the masterpieces and trash the pieces of genre cinema. I'm Gary. And I'm Chris. And after a week of trash, last week for Nasty November, we are back, and it's double episode week, and this week we're discussing two of the greatest horror films ever made. We actually are. Yeah, yeah. which is a, a nice surprise for Nasty November. <laughs> Uh, and as always, we have a guest with us today, and this week I am absolutely honoured for us to be joined by the host of one of my favourite podcasts, uh, and I'm sure one of yours. Absolutely. Too. Yeah. Uh, it's an engaging, entertaining, and fairly insightful podcast that provides a black queer perspective on horror, and I can't recommend it enough to all of our listeners. But we are joined by Avery from the Unbound and Rewound Horror Podcast. Oh my goodness, way to make me blush so early in the morning. <laughs> what an introduction. It's Thank all you true. All so we love it. Me. We love your podcast so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And I'm so excited to be here. Of course, the episode we did together was so fun. And yes. I'm glad that we can talk about a better movie uh than than that one <laughs> yes uh, and if uh, if any of our listeners haven't heard our day slash them episode on the unbound rebound horror podcast go and check it out and listen to us uh talking about some trash <laughs> yeah, highly recommend the episodes yes don't highly recommend the film so exactly. if you like when we talk crap about films then you're in for a real treat <laughs> Uh, so this year for Nasty November, you are our second guest from across the pond, and we thought it'd be nice to change things up and actually have um, people from across the pond discussing video nasties, because it's such a British thing. And uh, do you have any thoughts that you're familiar with the whole era of video nasties and such? I believe so. I looked at your list that you provided, very resourceful, by the way. Um, and it's it, it seems like they are movies that spark controversy, might be like too campy for non-horror fans. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, pretty much it's it was an era in which um, the conservative government here basically told grown adults they weren't allowed to watch horror films. Right. And uh, they made them, you could be prosecuted for owning them. Uh, and this month we're discussing Section 3 films. So that was the list of films where you couldn't be prosecuted for owning them, but you could still have them confiscated. Wow. Um, like the whole thing is absolutely bizarre. And it was even at a point where they said dogs were having a reaction <laughs> to horror films. Oh my God. So, yeah. I think... Pearl clutching at horror films isn't inherently British. No. I think it, it does happen in America as well. I think just to a different degree. Something like yeah. the R rating where a parent could take a child of any age to go see Green, you know, or mm -hmm. I'm, I'm speaking from personal experience because that was the film that I really wanted to watch when I was younger and I wasn't allowed I, I yeah. actually had a videotape confiscated off of me by my parents because <laughs> I wasn't allowed. But mm -hmm. if my parents were more open, they could have taken me to the cinema in America to go yeah. see it on release. And I mean, for a lot of the earlier um, horror movies, such as the one we're talking about today, but also uh, like The Exorcist, 
it was never a governmental thing. It may have been like banned in certain states or in certain cities or towns, um, definitely protested against, but it was never just completely stripped away because I think America, if they care about anything, they care about freedom of speech. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Um, <laughs> do you have a favorite from the video nesties from the list I sent over? Yeah, I, besides what we're talking about today, because what a movie, yeah. I have to go with Suspiria, um, Dario Argento. Wow. I love both his and the modern version, but the thing about the 70s original classic is the bright colors you don't associate with horror, especially like modern horror, but what a beautiful and just mind bending film. Yeah, that is a fantastic choice. It is amazing how that film is pretty much a fairy tale with gore. <laughs> yeah. uh, but today we are discussing uh, a film originally known as Night of Anubis and also known as Night of the Flesh Eaters. But as we all know, as horror fans, Night of the Living Dead from 1968. Uh, written and directed by George A. Romero. This was his directorial debut. Uh, I imagine this being your debut. That is incredible. And on such a small budget, such yeah. little resources, and what he achieved with it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, of course, for anyone who's new to the podcast and hasn't listened to the many times we've discussed his films, uh, he is the director of Dawn, Day, Land Diary, and Survival of the Dead. Creepshow, Monkey Shines, Martin, Night Riders, Bruiser, The Dark Half, and many more. Um, he re he admitted that Carnival of Souls uh, was a big influence in the making of this film, and I can tell. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Carnival of Souls, a fantastic film. Yeah. Um, but certainly, Night of the Living Dead, not a fluke, considering it's the ex- first yeah, his no, first absolutely. directorial film um certainly not a fluke no what a direct dawn of the dead martin um all fantastic masterpieces of horror cinema so it's not like and i may get some angry letters for this one but it's not like toby hooper who maybe (laughs) yeah started at the top and maybe plummeted (laughs) over time (laughs) That is if you're counting Steven Spielberg as the director of Poltergeist. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I suppose. (laughs) Um, This is co-written by John A. Russo, who did Return of the Living Dead, Night of the Living Dead remake, um, Scream Queen's Naked Christmas, (laughs) Santa Claus, uh, C-L-A-W-S, Midnight, The Booby Hatch, The Majorettes, and more. Now, disclaimer, we were going to do a Christmas special uh, John A. Russo films, and it was going to be Screen Queen's Naked Christmas and Santa Claus, but Santa Cl- uh, Screen Queen's Naked Christmas isn't available anywhere. And um, do you know what? It's probably for the best. Probably. Right. <laughs> I think this is definitely a, few, uh, a fluke for, for, for John A. Russo. <laughs> hey, Return of the Living Dead's a classic. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Yeah, that's true, actually. There you go. But yeah, Avery, you mentioned the budget, and it was made on $114,000. I mean, that's so impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then it ended up making like over a million dollars in box office. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. This is one of the most profitable independent films ever made. And roughly, overall, over time, it's made $30 million at the box office. But obviously, with the copyright thing, mm. which was bought, uh, brought about by um, any work around this time that didn't include a copyright notice, was assumed to public domain. And the filmmakers forgot to issue this notice. It's been public domain since its release. And because of that, it's not easy to get a exact number of how much money this has made over the years. And because of that, Romero did not receive a lot of profit from this film. No. Um, and it's also why you get so many shoddy DVDs of the film. <laughs> That completely misadvertise <laughs> what the film actually yeah. is on the front cover. <laughs> awful posters, yeah. awful, really just shoddy, shoddy DVDs. <laughs> Have you seen the 90s version where they included the extra footage? I've seen clips of it, but I haven't been able to see the actual full thing. Um, but it, I was always so curious as to why when you look up Night of the Living Dead, so many versions pop up. You never know which one's the real one. And it's because of the whole public domain thing. Yeah. And that's also the reason why it pops up in so many other films. On the TV in the background. Yeah. Like, this is the go-to. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the moment they finished editing the film in Pittsburgh, they put the reels into the cans, threw it into the trunk of a car, and drove straight to New York City. Uh, with the hopes that it'll be screened, screened at any willing theatre. And, I mean, it was, and shown to a lot of kids, because this is actually the film, one of the last films released before the rating system came into place in America. Mm. So you'd get, like, screenings full of nine-year-olds who thought they were watching a cheesy 50s B-movie, and uh, it'd be this. <laughs> You had the Hayes Code, but I feel like a lot of the Hayes Code was about sex on screen. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And violence, and it's kind of a carried on now. Violence is never kind of looked at, at the same level as sex mm-hmm. in you know, a lot of sort of mainstream films, particularly. Um, I go back to the, the Pearl clasping of yeah. the uh, <laughs> the middle-aged women who were like, oh no, not, not, I, uh, not genitals on the big screen. <laughs> but you can see numerous heads being chopped yeah. off. Well, and with this movie, it was kind of the first gory movie. It established the kind of like splash splatter horror genre that we started to see after. So of course, like, I feel like stuff like the rating system, the Hayes Code, it was developing as these things were coming out. So the biggest thing before that was homosexuality and drugs and alcohol and sex. And then once George A. Romero said, you know what? I have a little something for you. He said, right, we're going to include this now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think the film speaks a lot about the time that it was made with a lot of themes that I'm sure we'll get into as, as it goes on. Um, but particularly, this is around the time of the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And I think this is also, this film, I think that mixed with, you know, this film's inclusion of gore and everything 
it really changed the face of horror. And I think that led to something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where the themes about the Vietnam War are a lot more explicit within the film and also wasn't afraid to go a little further. I think this just started that. And of course, you had smaller films by smaller directors before this point, like Blood Feast was before this, I believe. Was it before this? It was. Yeah, yeah. and, you know, films like that, but they weren't getting seen by many people. This was this went mainstream. It was an indie film, go mainstream. And people hadn't seen horror like this before. And especially this invented the way we look at zombies now as well. Mm-hmm. So zombie is never mentioned once in this film. They're only referred to as ghouls or flesh eaters. Um, but now the whole, you've got to kill a zombie by shooting them in the head, destroying the brain, it originated from this film. And it's just amazing to see how much of an impact this film had on the genre. Yeah, and before this movie and the term zombie, um, a lot of movies that incorporated the term zombie were based off of Haitian spirituality and religion. So their whole idea of a zombie was based off of completely separate, you know, like religious system. So then when this movie comes out, it's no longer just associated with one religion or spirituality. Um, but now it's just something that can happen when bacteria spreads or, you know, whatever the case is. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, a really interesting fact as well is Columbia Pictures was the only major Hollywood studio interested in distributing this film but eventually passed because it was in black and white at a time when films had to compete with new color televisions. Mm. Uh, Columbia did distribute the 1990 remake, however, and American International Pictures considered releasing the film, but wanted Romero to shoot an upbeat ending and add more of a love story subplot, to which Romero rightfully told them absolutely not. <laughs> no. <laughs> Um, and I think that's why something like Blood Feast, um, despite actually also being a video nasty, yeah. I think that's not seen as in high regards as Night of the Living Dead. Because Blood Feast, despite being a, a gore picture, is really campy and yeah. kind of stupid, um, which makes it incredibly <laughs> enjoyable. But Night of the Living Dead, I, th- I think, has more... More to it, more substance. Like, There's more. It's yeah. scarier. It's actually trying to scare you. It's not trying yeah. to repulse you. It's trying to make you uncomfortable. Not only uncomfortable about the horror and the the ghouls on display, but about how that fits into society and right. the layers. And I love talking about layers on this podcast. But the layers to what you're seeing and what that really means in terms of. 1968 and as we now know afterwards yeah because it's still relatable now right and I that's why like this movie I think it's really hard to while the filmmaking and certain aspects of it might be campy the overall just impact culturally historically is significant so much so that like you know when you talk about the civil rights movement when you talk about just like black people in horror this is almost where it starts with it all um yeah i'm wow i got goosebumps (laughs) (laughs) um but speaking of we we have a bit more to say about that shortly in a section we, we like, like to call. call. Hey, that's my line. <laughs> no, that's not what we call it. The section we like to call. Hey, I know you. 
Because isn't the long hair I know you in regards no. to the amount of cast members I have here? Because a lot of people, I, I think most of this cast this is their first time acting, mm. um, which is great. And some a lot of them just didn't do anything else or just one or two films. Um, but I think someone who is, it's vital we discuss them. Um, I didn't have a very long career, sadly, because of his death in 1988, uh, is Dwayne Jones as Ben, uh, who was a star of Ganger and Hess, which is amazing, and everyone should go watch that film. To Die For, Vampires, Fright House, Beach Street, and Losing Ground. Now, Dwayne Jones was the first African-American to have a starring role in a mainstream horror film. And the character of Ben was originally supposed to be a crude but resourceful truck driver with no specification as to race. But after Jones in... Uh, in real life, a South serious, um, erudite academic audition for the part, Romero rewrote the part to fit his performance. And when he was given the role, he expressed concern that the character uh, needed to be rewritten to remove some of the more aggressive sides to him, uh, such as the scene where he hits Barbara, afraid of how it would be widely perceived in the United States at the time to see a black man acting in this way. The nation was still plagued with high racial tensions during the late 60s. The film was released to theaters shortly after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Nonetheless, Romero and most of the rest of the predominantly white crew decided against it, thinking they were being hip by not changing it. Years later, Romero lamented that he had not taken Jones' concerns more into consideration and thought that he was probably correct in wanting those scenes removed. He expressed that he wished he could speak with the late Jones again, asking him how he felt about the film's legendary status and believed that Jones would just say, who knew, and laugh. Um, so yeah, a lot to say about this character. Arguably one of the most important characters in horror history. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And from what we've seen from George Romero, it's all kind of by chance. Yeah. He didn't really intend on any of it to happen. And I think it's a testament to Dwayne Jones as an actor as well. He was just so good and they really wanted him for the film that they sort of made it possible for him to yeah. be the lead in this film. And I think a lot of um, what happens in the film can be interpreted within the sort of realms of 1960s race politics and I don't know, I, I assume George Romero didn't intend that when he wrote it. Which is insane. every film is a product of its yeah. time. I've always believed that. Every film is a product of its yeah. time. Right. Um, yeah, I think that before Dwayne Jones came along, before Night of the Living Dead, all of the Black characters that we saw were subservient or just made for like comedic relief, um, always of course dying first. Um, so then when George A. Romero casted Dwayne Jones just based off of the fact that he was the most talented person and the fact that he didn't change. I mean, there's two sides to it. It's like, you should have changed the role a little bit more into what Dwayne jo Jones was trying to tell you. However, the fact that he didn't change it to fit a black character was also a uh, powerful choice for the time because it could have gone south. He could have said, okay, you're black, so we're gonna give you all of this different black slang that everyone else uses and everything like that. Um, I, this film and 
Dwayne Jones's career afterwards is just like such a pivotal point for Black horror specifically. Um, and I do wish that he could have lived longer because I think he would have had such an amazing horror career specifically. Oh, absolutely. He is incredible in Ganja and Hess as I well. I love Ganja and Hess. I, I feel like, I feel like there's such a, a little known film but deserves way more attention than it actually gets. Yeah. We, we watched it on the big screen um, last year at a small indie cinema near us and we were like, some of the only people in there. It's like, no, more people need to be here. This is amazing. But also, one, I, I don't know if we could do a podcast on it. It's so weird and... I feel like we we probably spent about two plus hours discussing it if we did. I, yeah, there's so many yeah. layers to that film as well. But yeah, uh, absolutely iconic actor and just such an iconic role. That uh, yeah, again, you know, it felt groundbreaking for the time and changed so much going forward. Mm-hmm. And we have Judith O'Day as Barbara. A role that didn't change much going forward, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> fortunately. Um, the, she was in The Pirate, Claustrophobia, October Moon 1 and 2, Timo Rose's Beast, Women's Studies, Shy of Normal, Tales of New Life Experiences, Kill Giggles, and a few more. Uh, one of the original script ideas called for her to be a strong, charismatic character, but instead Romero and the producers loved O'Day's portrayal as a terrified young girl much better and edited the script to accommodate the part. The idea of Barbara being a strong central character was revisited in the remake, where this character is portrayed, in my opinion, a lot better. Um, I think Judith O'Day does a good job in this film, but the character is so, I don't know, just, like, frustrating to watch at times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She looks like Leslie Gore. She does. Um, yeah, I don't know if anyone's... <laughs> Oh, everyone over 50 who's listening will know who I'm referring to there. Um, expecting more from her, but the more I watch the film, the more I kind of realise that maybe that's how I would react yeah. in this situation. Yeah. You kind of want her to do a little more and just be a little more strong but then also you're like, well, actually, is she maybe the most realistic character? There is that, yeah. I think because we're watching it from a modern gaze where so many women in horror after this are ass-kicking strong final girls who, yeah. like the one in 1990, completely destroyed all the zombies and, you know, had layers to her. I think... That's what we're kind of used to. And looking back at this now, it's like, well, what, what on earth is this? Why isn't she fighting back? Why is she just there in this catatonic state, you know? But I I still I think Judith O'Day does a great gives a great performance. Um and yeah, I know what you mean. It is definitely more realistic. Just to believe though, I'm gonna spend the whole time discussing how annoying she is. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I'm not gonna let her off that easy. <laughs> That was exactly how I was feeling, I think, because, I mean, she does end up talking a little bit more towards the halfway point, but in the very beginning, whenever her and Ben first meet, and he's trying to, like, talk to her and make a game plan, and she's just not giving him anything to work with, I was getting so annoyed. I was like, (laughs) oh my gosh, please pull it together. (laughs) 
It's, it's then when she starts talking and she starts giving that boring story about the cemetery and he's just there like, look, I think you need to calm down. And everyone's just, please, just shut up. Just stop, <laughs> stop going on. <laughs> uh, and for my final Hey, I Know You is S. William Hinsman, who plays the graveyard zombie. Now, he's the only other person in the cast I could find with more than two roles in, in his filmography. Um, he was in Zombie Nosh. Yes, that's what it's really called. Right. <laughs> AKA Flesh Eater, where I believe he brings that character back. Does Nosh mean the same thing in America? <laughs> I don't think so. No. no. Um, I'm assuming not. not nosh, noshing is how we would usually use it uh, in the UK, would be like a sexual act. Oral sex. Oral sex. Thank you. Thank <laughs> Interesting. You, Interesting choice for a, for a title, too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if that's a UK title. I, I mean, think, if it is, that's alarming. I think but... <laughs> Nosh is eating, though, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah. it's kind of, so we would use it in more <laughs> a sexual sense rather yeah. than zombie Nosh, which would be food. I mean, I've not seen zombie Nosh, the film, Maybe so I can't confirm it. if that's what it's about. Well, I'm, I'm intrigued either way. He's also in There's Always Vanilla, Season of the Witch, The Crazies, Night Riders, The Amusement Park. And more. So lots of Romero's other films and little bit parts here and there. Um, but that's all I have. Yeah, Romero's definitely one of those filmmakers, even after the success of Night of the Living Dead, who would essentially go to people he knew and be like, fancy being in a film? You fancy getting involved? I'll, I'll buy you lunch. Um we saw it in Dawn of the Dead as well, yeah. where everybody knew each other, despite it being a, a huge cast. Um, so you have someone like Judith Ridley, who plays Judy, who was only ever in Night of the Living Dead. And also <laughs> George Romero's next film, There's Always Vanilla. Um, There's Always Vanilla is genuinely one of the most boring films I have ever watched. <laughs> have you seen it, Avery? No. No. Um, don't do it. Don't do it. it. It's I don't know how it's possible to go from Night of the Living Dead to I, I gave it half a star on Letterboxd. I hate There's Always Vanilla. Because um, Night of the Living Dead initially was George Romero. He was going to make a very sort of Ingmar Bergman-esque film. A very sort of um, slow burn drama. Uh, which is, I think, is what There's Always Vanilla was trying to be. <laughs> and I think he soon realised, no, I'd just stick to the horror. Yeah. Stick with what you know. <laughs> so, let's talk about our feature presentation. Welcome to a night of total terror. <laughs> night of the living dead. Uh, we start with the iconic opening credits with the fantastic score and the car driving along a long road. Uh, and we're introduced to siblings Barbara and Johnny as they drive to a cemetery in rural Pennsylvania to visit their father's grave and have a bicker about how long the drive is. Johnny cannot stop complaining no. about how long <laughs> it takes to get there back. <laughs> um, yeah, siblings squabbling yeah um i like how johnny mentions church and barbara says that she hasn't seen him in church uh in a very long time and he's all about why well, i don't go to church i'm too cool for that he wears you know black gloves <laughs> in the daytime 
<laughs> and um, I just find it interesting that with our knowledge of horror films, it would detect that Barbara, as a good Christian church-going woman, <laughs> would be our final girl. So we're like, okay, you know, we know what's going to happen. Um, she's going to make it to the end. She's going to be our heroine. And the power of Christ will compel whatever's going to happen during this film. It doesn't, obviously, <laughs> as we all know. Um, but I did find that interesting that George Romero would add the religion aspect, but not really go anywhere with it. It's this is beyond religion. This yeah. is be and, and as Avery was saying about the zombie films that came previously, yeah. it was very much ingrained in um belief systems and religion and all that. Mm. I think this movie introduced to like the the zombie genre within horror introduced the aspect of government, military, and just like um, capitalism as well, um, which now we see a lot in zombie movies. But before, as you were just saying, it was mainly about religion and curses and demons. Yeah, yeah, and I think. Um... Yeah, it's, it's easy to see how this type of zombie managed to become so highly influential over the years. I mean, when you look at the design of them in this film as well, it's also very different to what came after. So I think a lot of films misunderstood what this was trying to do because um, when applying the makeup for the actors playing the zombies, uh, Marilyn Eastman, who also plays Helen Cooper, um, focused on a less rotten appearance for most of them. Instead, uh, made it more prominent that they were dead for an unsettling image. And uh, yeah, I think that it works. It looks really creepy. But a lot of films now would go for heavy CGI makeup and high gore. I think fa famously, in respect to Dawn of the Dead, George Romero said that we are the living dead. Mm. We all there are there are two things that we know to be true in life we are born and we die and therefore we are the living dead we all know it's going to happen at some point so i think having them more human like but with sort of damage to their face and, and such but for them to be very clearly human i think really adds to the realism yeah it's these are real people and they were alive and they kind of look like they are, but they're not. Yeah. Which is a yeah, big aspect of the film. Sorry. That that connection comes kind of like full circle when you get later into the film and you see people who were once alive that are now a part of the living dead. Um, and you're able to kind of see that that transition in a sense. Uh, so after hearing about technical interruptions on the radio, the two of them make their way to the grave. They're still complaining, this time about the reef that they put on his grave every year. Barbara has a moment with the grave, and Johnny has had enough of waiting for her. They recall a time when Johnny played a trick on Barbara because she's so scared of graveyards. And uh, this is where we get the iconic, they're coming to get you, Barbara. Um, I ain't going to try and do it because I can't it. do Go justice. On. I'll, I'll give it a go. They're coming to get you, Barbara. That's pretty good. That was good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to which Barbara says, stop it, you're ignorant, which I don't really get. Um, <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> What's he ignorant towards? I know, yeah. <laughs> A fear of graveyards? <laughs> Can I just say, no wonder their mum doesn't accompany them. Imagine <laughs> I know, yeah. having to listen to this shit for a three-hour drive all the way there. Six-hour drive. Well, it's three hours there, three hours back. Yeah. Imagine having to listen to this shit. Yeah. Maybe, maybe she has more of... Like, maybe she interprets it as... Johnny doesn't have a respect for the dead because yeah, she spends yeah. so much time with the grave that it's like she doesn't see it as a like body, you know, decaying body in the ground, but like her dad's spirit is there and she is spending time with it. So the fact that he's like, they're coming to get you, Barbara. And she's like, oh my gosh, like that is not what we're here for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Johnny is an absolute nightmare. I mean, can you imagine just going to visit a grave and having to put up with that? And then, like, the sky is walking towards him. And yes, fair enough. He's this correct. pale man in a tattered suit is <laughs> uh, is actually one of the ghouls. But he's there, like, oh look, here comes one of them now. It's like, oh, God, this could just be someone visiting their relative's grave. <laughs> 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 but no, he's absolutely right. And uh, this guy attacks Barbara. And uh, Johnny tries saving her and he kills him. I love this opening. Yeah. I love the idea. And I think it's a fear that I have and a lot of people have. It's that fear of strangers. Yeah. It's the fear that the the guy is going to attack you. Yeah. And I, I know it sounds silly because, you know, um, it's, he's a zombie in this film. He's a ghoul. But we all have that fear of the people that we don't know. And... I think, you know, particularly for, for women, that sort of being left alone with a stranger in a completely, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Isolated. Rural, isolated. Yeah. yeah. That there, I think, is definitely a fear that we all have. Incredibly creepy, this opening. Yeah, and you have a lot of, um, I guess, like, particularly internet videos that go around and it's like, there was this really strange person walking this really strange way in the middle yeah. of the road. And it's so off-putting because you're like, I'm obviously not going to approach a person that's doing that. <laughs> but at any point, they could just start coming for me. And if yeah. I see someone acting strangely and it's just me and them, I am not going to draw attention to myself. Absolutely. I was like the creepy clowns, isn't it? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Oh, we love those videos. <laughs> <laughs> Barbara manages to escape in the car after the ghoul puts a brick through the window, uh, but she crashes it into a tree and runs away. Something that they had to include in the film because the car actually belonged to Russell Streiner, who plays uh, Johnny and is a producer on the film. It belonged to his mum, and she actually crashed the car and created a dent in it whilst they were filming. So uh, they're like, okay, how do we include this in the film oh there's another question to a tree um and she flees to a nearby farmhouse but finds the resident's corpse lying half eaten on the stairs and this house was loaned to the filmmakers by the owner who planned to demolish it anyway so they actually had to do it all up and make it look livable i do like this sequence too because i think at least now, zombie movies, horror movies, to an extent, can be predictable. So when you have a chasing scene or a very just like high tension scene where 
the character that you're currently spending time with is being hunted. Um, I think between like the very intriguing camera angles and just all of the different ways that she tried to escape but weren't successful, although I knew that she made it through the film, at least to a certain extent, I was stressed out. I was like, oh my gosh, is this is this zombie really going to get her? Yeah, no, absolutely. And this, there's so much of that tension throughout this film, even in scenes where very little is happening, because I find the soundtrack and the use of silence both work just as well with building tension. And the camera angles are just incredible. And the lighting, especially later on when there's a power cut, it's so atmospheric and you really feel like no one's safe. I mean, spoiler alert, they're not. Like, no one in this film is safe. And that, yeah, that makes it so much more intense. Like, even after so many rewatches as well. I love the shot of the half-eaten corpse yes. at the top of the stairs. Because yeah. the film very much, a very scary start, but also a bit universal monster-ish, mm. I think. It, you know, the ghoul's a bit like Frankenstein and, and such. She gets to the top of those stairs and it's a real grisly scene. And I can just imagine in, in 1968, an audience losing their shit yeah. over that image because it's it's diverting what's expected of this kind of film. Right. I mean, even me watching it, because I know what... I knew the relevance of this movie and what it kind of, like, conquered. However still the timing in which the movie came out there were still certain laws in place and a lot of protesting and religious you know organizations hating horror so when I saw it I I was taken aback and I mean I had just watched Thanksgiving from Eli Roth and I was still <laughs> gasping at the sight of this black and white corpse yeah absolutely and uh, on a side note what a film that was <laughs> <laughs> What a great way to spend Thanksgiving. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a grown horde of ghouls soon surround the house as a stranger Ben arrives and initially mistakes Barbara for the homeowner. And he's not going to know any different because she's not saying a thing. Right. <laughs> After driving back several ghouls with a crowbar, he boards the windows and doors. Whilst fighting off the final ghoul, who has found its way into the house, he struggles and drops the crowbar... Barbara still just stands by and watches. <laughs> this is where it's frustrating. It's like, come on, okay, girl, help him out. Pick up the crowbar, help him out. What are you doing? <laughs> I think we all, like I said earlier, I think we all assume we would be a Ben in this situation. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, Barbara is maybe the most realistic character, despite how annoying slash yeah. defenseless <laughs> she is throughout the whole film. <laughs> um, ben constantly talks to Barbara about what to do and how he got to the farmhouse. You know, he's trying his absolute best to make a conversation. And she repays him with silence at first and eventually a boring story about her trip to the graveyard with Johnny. And he's like, why don't you keep calm? And she's like, no, but Johnny's still out there. He's still out there. He's We've got to go and find him. And it's like, okay, no, clearly he's dead like how did you not see that happen um but she seemingly doesn't know and suggests to go find him and uh it bends us to her don't you know what's going on out there this is no sunday school picnic and uh it tells her johnny's dead and she refuses to believe it and he eventually slaps her and she faints in the most melodramatic way 
It's like, okay, that that's acting. <laughs> <laughs> well, she slaps him first. Yeah. So she she did slap him first. Yeah, she just keeps grabbing at him as well. It's She's like fun on uh, hysterical yeah. at this point, isn't she? She is. Correct me if I'm wrong. They never exchange names. No, no, they don't. So, I think he tells her his name. Does but he? he? Doesn't get hers. Yeah. Oh, I'm not. I don't. I didn't think they exchanged names because they don't do idle chit chat. No. no. So the film is is sort of based around the idea of these people being brought together by a circumstance. Right. Very breakfast club, isn't it? Where <laughs> people are forced into this situation, but they don't know each other and they have to come together to fight the evil forces of, you know, uh, <laughs> well, it's, is it uh, teachers in breakfast club <laughs> and it's zombies in night of the living dead so i i kind of like that they didn't have the idle chit chat yeah. because they probably wouldn't be friends outside of this situation so what's it's wasting time if they would get to know each other and you know at a game of monopoly or <laughs> give us an interesting fact about yourself <laughs> it's no and particularly ben who is like no we need to get to business i, I, I actually don't care I actually don't care about any of you. I care about survival. Um, and I think that's endearing, yeah. actually. So whilst uh, searching for the home supplies, Ben locates a rifle. A uh, nearly catatonic barber is surprised to find people already taking shelter in the home cellar. Uh, Harry, played by actor and co-producer Carl Hardman, uh, who also served as a makeup artist, electronic sound effects engineer, and took the still photos used for the closing credits. So he did a lot and was actually in a romantic relationship with uh, the actress who plays Helen as well. So, oh. yeah. It's, uh, oh, that's nice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but he, Harry, his wife Helen, and their young daughter Karen fled there after a group of the same monsters overturned their car and bit Karen on the arm, leaving her seriously ill. Picture a time where a child would have been called Karen. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so weird. Don't think we'll ever have that again. <laughs> it's going to die off with the Garys. It's, well, yeah. <laughs> I do have to say though, I have a friend named Karen, but it's with a Y and not an E. Ah, uh, so... no, that's better. Yeah, that's. <laughs> yeah, I think we're starting to twist it a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Um, a couple, Tom and Judy, took shelter after hearing an emergency broadcast about a series of brutal killings. Tom and Ben secure the farmhouse, whilst Harry protests that it is unsafe above ground before returning to the cellar. Harry is one of the most unlikable characters in horror history, and Romero is so good at writing these characters. You had it with the motorbike gang in Dawn of the Dead, you had the soldier in Day of the Dead, the one who gets his guts ripped out. Mm -hmm. It's like, he's so good around these characters. You cannot stand at all. And Harry is definitely the start of that. And once you have, <laughs> once you have all of these characters together, I would be more just like Barbara, if not, if I wasn't already catatonic, yeah. <laughs> just all of the different personalities in yeah. one room together you have harry trying to like just completely take over everything but also be completely useless at the same time and then ben just going in and automatically just starting to go to work putting things up too many things are happening at once and i would yeah. rather just like be silent and shake to myself in the corner <laughs> 
I think it's interesting what's on the radio during all this as well. So they get the radio working. Uh, in so many of these films, the radio or the TV don't work. Yeah. Um, but in Night of the Living Dead, it pretty much works throughout the whole film. So mm. a lot of the information that they're getting is via the radio and television. And they believe everything that they hear. Like every, every single day. Uh, at one point, um, Tom, I think he says, essentially, it must be true because the TV told us. Yeah. You know, this is what we need to do. So um, the radio says that at this hour, we repeat, these are the facts as we know them. There is an epidemic of mass murder being committed by a virtual army of unidentified assassins. The murders are taking place in villages and cities, in rural homes and suburbs, with no apparent pattern nor reason for the slayings. I mean, it's given Red Scare. As, mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, eyewitnesses say they are ordinary looking people. Some say they appear to be in a kind of trance. Others describe them as being misshapen monsters. <laughs> it reminds me of, and I don't know if you've seen it. I haven't shown it to you. It's an old, um, I don't even know, call it a PSA? Public yeah. service, yeah. And that, that kind of thing, of the dangers of homosexuals. <laughs> and they're hiding amongst us. Uh-huh. And... Uh, <laughs> Some look ordinary, some are monsters, misshapen monsters who are out to kill your children, these homosexuals. It reminds me of that. Now, we we know we're watching a film, we know it's true, Um, but I feel like the radio and TV, reminiscent of those sort of, uh, beware, it's 10 o'clock, where are your children? Mm -hmm. That sort of thing. It's, yeah, I think the... Media outlets have always kind of played a part in fear-mongering when it comes to situations like this, or like you think of the way that COVID was um, was handled by media outlets as well. Um, so this is no different, if not just, as you all were talking about, kind of like the sign of the times. And that's what I think is so great in this film, is there are many themes, again, don't know how intentional it was, but there are so many interesting themes and layers and messages here that you can place from around that time, but also can, you know, look at from a modern perspective. It's like, oh shit, this is actually still just as relevant today yeah. as it was back then. Absolutely. Because if you you didn't, if we didn't have the internet, social media, and if, if say you wanted to be a recluse, who didn't want to listen to the radio or watch TV, which is perfectly reasonable. Some people live like that. You'd have no idea that COVID was a, a thing. No. You would leave your house. And go, Where is everyone? Yeah. <laughs> What's going on here? Yeah. <laughs> so we just, we inherently have to believe what we're seeing mm. or hearing from the media. And I think sometimes we forget to take it with a pinch of salt. Yeah. Um, and I, I say we, uh, I mean <laughs> humanity <laughs> as a whole. I think sometimes we do forget to be like, oh, maybe it's not true then. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's why bigotry is so effective nowadays is because there are so many platforms to spread it on. And mm-hmm. there are so many small minded people out there to believe it and spread it further through their platforms or social media. Yes, yeah. if anything, it's gotten worse, yeah. actually. If, yeah. if anything, it's gotten worse yeah. over the years. 
That is a bit of real life horror. For us. I was gonna say. <laughs> I also love where after Barbara wakes up, like Ben awkwardly tries to talk to her, yeah, as if he hasn't just slapped the shit out. <laughs> like, like, are, you, are we going to hey. talk about the slap <laughs> and why she fainted? I know she slapped you first, but are we not going to discuss it? <laughs> she passed off, God knows how long. <laughs> Um, the ghouls continue to head towards the farmhouse in increasing numbers, including one eating a bug and another, the iconic fully nude zombie. Again, yes. this must have been groundbreaking for horror around this time, surely. Like, I, was there much before this nudity in horror? Um, no, I don't. I don't think so. No, because I... the um, the Hays Code they were strictly against nudity. Specifically. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's always such a memorable sight because of that. I'm always like, so surprised to see it there. But, yeah. I suppose it's, it's true, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, if, if you're bitten whilst in the shower, yeah. you know, you are going to be a nude zombie. It's just, um, it's just the re- reality, really. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I bet I'd be in my worst outfit if I was. I'd be like in my pyjamas <laughs> going around or something like that, or like a really horrible dressing gown that I only wear when I'm <laughs> ill sort of thing. That's why you just have to go out dressed as if you're going to get eaten by a zombie. So yeah, yeah. if you become a ghoul, at least you're slaying, you know? Exactly. It's a good reason to always slay. And that's, yeah. that's a great life lesson. Always. You never know when the next opportunity will come. <laughs> Um, when Harry boards up the basement door and decides to stay down there, Helen basically tells him he's a moron and making the worst decision. And she says, we may not enjoy living together, but dying together isn't going to solve anything. Those people up there aren't our enemies. And at this point, it's like, okay, Helen, you were far too good for Harry. What are you... just, just... Yeah, he's a stubborn old turd. Yes. Um, and I kind of, with Harry, I, I think it's clear that he, in many ways, um, is a racist. Yeah. And his... Uh, I, I kind of wish maybe it was expressed clearer. Mm. Um, that, mm-hmm. uh, but I think you can absolutely see him as distrusting of Ben yeah. because of Ben's race. Yeah. Absolutely. Harry and Henry go upstairs whilst Judy goes downstairs to watch their daughter... The refugees listen to radio and television reports of an army of cannibalistic corpses committing mass murder across the east coast of the United States and of the process of armed men patrolling the countryside to exterminate the living dead. Reports, reports confirm that the ghouls can die again from heavy blows to the head, bullets to the brain, or being burned. Various rescue centers offer refuge and safety, and scientists theorize that radiation from an exploding space probe returning from Venus caused the reanimations. And I like that we kind of got that, like, this is just a theory, this is what we think it is, and there's actually not an explanation here to say why this is all happening, because I think a lot of modern horror gets bogged down with so much exposition, and this has to have a backstory, that has to have a backstory, but here it's just like, well, no, these people are about to life, we think we know what it is, but actually we don't know. Which is weirdly very honest yeah. from yeah. the newscasters. Yeah. Um, but also, as we know with media, sometimes just the suggestion and putting it out there, mm-hmm. there's people who are going to jump on that bandwagon. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the the idea of 
it being because of space exploration um, and with it being a year before the moon landing, yeah. I think that is social commentary, I, I do, because um, the idea of uh, the Cold War space race being at yeah. its height, and could we see this as a comment on human life on Earth being neglected and therefore suffering at the expense of some Cold War posturing? Mm. Um, the idea of trying to be the alpha male, Harry Cooper, absolutely trying to be the alpha male, the guy in charge, the guy who knows everything. I think in terms of Amer- people must think we hate America on this podcast. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, you're not wrong. <laughs> but a lot of the Cold War was based on the idea that America wanted to be number one. Yeah. We are number one. We're going to get to the moon before everybody else. Um, that kind of posturing is ultimately pointless when everyone that you're meant to be taking care of is dying. It mm-hmm. means nothing. Space exploration doesn't mean anything if what's left on the planet is dying or the people are suffering. And I I think, I think it's deliberate, the idea Mm -hmm. that the suggestion that it's the sort of space exploration that is the reason or could be the reasoning. I don't think it's pulled out of thin air. I I do think George, George, like I know. Your good friend George. My good friend George. (laughs) I think Mr. Romero was uh, very deliberate in in that. Yeah. Ben devises a plan to obtain medical supplies for Karen and transport the uh, group to a rescue center by refueling his truck at a pump on the farm. Ben, Tom, and Judy drive there together, holding the ghouls off with torches and Molotov cocktails. However, the gas from the pump spills and causes the truck to catch fire and explode. Killing Tom and Judy. We barely got to know them. Tom and Judy. <laughs> so, um, so dur- during the TV broadcast as well, yeah. um, the doctor says in order to survive, they must use logic rather than emotion in decision-making. Forgetting that the ghouls were once human, were once their friends, <laughs> lovers, relatives. Um, spoiler alert, a lot of people are going to die because they put their emotions first. Judy is top of that list. Yes. Because she can't be away from Tom. Um, She joins them, and Tom, for some reason, decides to start throwing fuel everywhere. I have no idea why he starts doing that. But ultimately, their demise is because Judy gets her jacket caught in the truck. Yeah. And it explodes, and they both die. If Judy had jolly well minded her own business kept herself to herself and allowed Tom and and Ben to do what they needed to do then they both would have survived ultimately yeah well actually probably probably would have died later on but they would have (laughs) survived that moment (laughs) I think they were getting eaten either way but (laughs) Ben returns and breaks down the door when Harry doesn't let him in and he rightfully beats Harry up for not letting him in the remaining survivors attempt to figure a way out. They pause their discussion to watch the 3 a.m. news update until the power cuts out. Uh, the ghouls, after graphically eating some guts outside... It's soon... a Tom and Judy barbecue. It, yeah, it is a Tom and Judy barbecue. Uh, soon break through the doors and windows of the unlit home. And yeah, this scene is just so gory. Like, 
the what you'd expect around that time. And it looks great. I mean, they were eating uh, roast ham covered in chocolate sauce. Oh. So, yeah. <laughs> I think it's, it's the power of film as a, a, a medium. The idea that people got so worked up yeah. over what is essentially ham and chocolate sauce. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's quite funny that, you know, it's a video nasty. It's, we want it banned. This is disgusting. This is disgraceful. Mm-hmm. And it's stuff you've got in your cupboard. It's right. just the way that filmmakers create mm-hmm. this illusion. Um, sounds a bit wanky, but it, it's beautiful to see. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think because at the time, colored um, pictures were starting to become more popular. And if they had made this in color, it probably would have never been released because I think the color adds to the graphicness and goriness of the, you know, of what you're seeing on the screen. Definitely. In the chaos, Harry grabs Ben's gun, but as the sound and shot by Ben, thank God for that. He really had it coming. That's part of the movie. (laughs) Harry staggers down to the cellar and dies next to his daughter. Meanwhile, Barbara is still sitting around doing nothing. She, I forgot she was even in the film still. At this point, she's definitely like, okay, I hope people don't remember I'm here. Like, please don't get me involved in this. Do you think that Harry in some way could maybe represent the US government in a way? Just the idea that he's desperately clinging on to a Cold War paranoia, despite there being more pressing issues at hand. Harry's demise... And in some way, ways, Ben's demise as well, mm-hmm. and everyone else's, is because Harry was too goddamn stubborn yeah. to just allow someone else to take charge. He had yeah. to be right. And he didn't only have to be right. Like Helen said earlier in the film, everyone else has to be wrong. Mm-hmm. You can't join as a team. You have to be at the head of the pile. And... Um, I think it's interesting. And I, I think Harry, in many ways, represents a lot of um, negatives within, yeah. you know, US culture and history at the time. I can see that, especially because with Harry, yeah, he has to be right. He has to be the leader, but he's not really exhibiting any leadership qualities. He's not doing anything proactively to actually help all of them who are in the house. Um, It's Ben who is doing that. And I mean, with the United States, they've proven time and time time and time again that they will try to assume that leadership role, but only do what best serves them and them only. And the UK is not much better. We're not much better. I do, I do, we're not. We're not US haters. We hate everybody equally on this podcast. But it, we discuss a lot of American films, so a lot of, a lot of American politics. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, we need to find a UK a hey, British hey, come film. Come on, um, Lucas here and Disboris Johnson. There's a lot of bad things to say about American politics. And yeah. A lot of bad things to say about UK. Politics. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> 
Karen dies from her injuries, becomes a ghoul, and eats her father's remains, which originally was going to be the other way around. It was going to be Harry eating her remains. Oh. But they thought it was a bit too disturbing to, uh, to include mm. in there. This um, looks much better on a poster. Yeah. Much yeah. better. And uh, she then stabs her mother to death with a masonry trowel, and it is an iconic scene. It's iconic. Iconic. It's so creepy as well. I mean... You know, nowadays it's very overdone, the whole creepy kid thing. And here it kind of feels just effortless. Like, this is just a, a zombie child <laughs> killing the parents. And Helen, she lets her emotions get the better of her as yeah. well, which leads to her demise. Because mm-hmm. she is watching her, despite everything that the TV and the radio has said, she is watching her daughter eat her husband's arm. Yeah. And she's like, oh, Karen, oh, baby, come here. No, get the fuck out of there, woman. <laughs> Barbara finally tries to help Ben to keep the ghouls out, but it's too late because the reanimated Johnny drags her away. I'm sorry, another one that may not translate. Johnny here in, America, in, in the UK also means condom. Yes, yeah, so gigantic condom drags her away. Johnny <laughs> wow. drags her away. <laughs> Quite ridiculous. Um, yeah, Barbara, she lived. She served nothing. She died. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, yeah, and again, she, she didn't see Johnny as the ghoul that he no, was. She no. saw him still as her brother. So she was, oh, Johnny. And yeah, she's gonna. Yeah. We don't see her get killed, though. She, no. she may have fired for the sequel. She definitely <laughs> As the horde breaks in, Ben takes refuge in the Sala, where he shoots Harry and Helen's ghouls. In the morning, an armed posse arrives to dispatch the remaining ghouls. Awoken by their gunfire and sirens, Ben emerges from the Sala, but they shoot him, mistaking him for a ghoul. And... His body is thrown onto a bonfire and burned with the rest of the ghouls. And that's Night of the Living Dead ending with a reminder that reality is scarier than fiction because I am sure there is definitely another way to take that other than him being mistaken for a ghoul. Yeah, most definitely. (laughs) Especially because, I mean... I say it all the time on my podcast. I'm sure people are just tired of hearing me say it. But... um, especially when you when you talk about horror and the monsters within it it's like the monsters are always the other which can always translate to queerness or being black or the immigrant experience or whatever it is um and so the fact that they just automatically assume that he was one of these ghouls um kind of exhibits that otherness that they saw in ben um which proves your you know your opinion on harry being racist because it probably was exactly that um and also just seeing that um on screen that was i want to say the first time where we saw a white mob in a sense murder a black man um and similarly to the way that they were doing that like you know the government was treating black people at the time in the civil rights and everything like that um so that the ending scene specifically is just so powerful and hard to watch all at the same time 
Yeah, absolutely. It's such a, a gut puncher of an ending. And again, you know, sadly, another theme that we're not miles away from now. No. You know, as as terrible as that is. Because the the idea is that, yes, some of these are police officers. Yeah. And it's, it's impossible not to see some of the imagery and not be reminded yeah. of, you know, the race riots that took place during yeah. the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the idea of these armed posse, whoever they are, whoever, if they're butchers, they're bakers, anyone Mm. taking a gun and having this power to shoot whoever with no real consequences Mm -hmm. and getting rather trigger happy with it as well. I mean, that still resonates now. It's, you know, um, the, the Carl Rittenhouse story, you know, it, it's still bang up to date, and, and it's it's shameful, really, yeah. and it, it's quite saddening that the themes in Night of a Living Dead, um, God, how many years later? With really close to sixty years later, yeah. still resonates. Yeah, and America has a crazy mob mentality, um, as we've seen since. I mean, I almost want to say. Was it 2016 in Charlotte, Virginia? Charlotte, North Carolina? One of the two. Um, You had a bunch of white supremacists just because they were, we were asking them to take down a bunch of statues um, of, you know, like Confederate soldiers and everything like that. And so these white supremacists got together and just completely mobbed this town and they had pitchforks and they had torches and it's the way that America and these kinds of groups can find a way to come together and unite, but only to cause destruction. Um, and I think this, the ending of this um, is also very prevalent to that as well. And that is Night of the Living Dead. A, one of the most influential, important, and one of the best horror films ever made. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, and and I've said it time and time again on the podcast, I think horror, more than any other genre, can incorporate this kind of social commentary. And I think that's why it's such a master. It remembers to be scary Mm -hmm. and also remembers to be entertaining, but it has a lot to say and it has those layers that I really enjoy sort of mm-hmm. getting into. I um, maybe sometimes a little long-winded on the podcast, but I, I love these kind of films because there's so much to talk about. Yeah. It's it's the, obviously the race aspects that we've spoken about, uh, Vietnam War, the Cold War. But there's also um, the idea that the ghouls are representing the silent majority. Yeah. So silent majority is a term coined by, in some way, by Calvin Coolidge in 1919, but was made popular by Richard Nixon in 1969. Mm. So Nixon used the term to refer to a middle America that mostly stayed quiet in relation to politics, but had a lot of political power. He Mm. saw the counterculture as a more vocal minority who overshadowed the silent majority. Um, and it's that's the kind of shit that led to Trump being elected 
despite the frequent insinuation that we live in woke snowflake times. Yeah. It's this silent majority and it's why someone like Richard Nixon got voted in despite us constantly being told that the late 60s was full of hippies. Yeah. So yeah, these, these... That... Oh, sorry. Sorry, no, it's fine. <laughs> uh, I was just going to say that, oh, and now I, t- I completely lost it. So <laughs> 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 I, I, I think for me, the, I think it's the idea of this uh, silent majority devouring others yeah. to survive is very um, infuriating because it, rings so true mm-hmm. um, mm. not just america but here as well yeah. the idea that in order to fatten themselves up they have to feed off of others mm-hmm. um i think if that's george romero's intention then you know fantastic but you i i love that it's a film that you can read in so many different Absolutely. ways yeah and i get so annoyed when people say like oh it's never that deep it's not that serious it's just a horror movie but even the slashers the silly slashers there is something within there that is deep that is commentating on something within our society and when people say like you know I like my movies without politics I like my movies without it's you're never gonna get that there is not a horror movie out there that has nothing to do with politics Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, that's the thing. These are the best kind of films because if you can enjoy a film and have fun with it and take something away from it that actually means something to you in your personal life and, you know, anything you've had to deal with as well, you know, like so much, there's so much queer horror out there that people refuse to see as queer horror when it, yeah. it clearly is, whether through subtext or just blatantly queer, you know, without hiding it, then that's great. That's great. And people shouldn't be annoyed at that. People shouldn't be taken away from that. It's something mm-hmm. to be celebrated that we're able to achieve this through horror, a genre that has, you know, people, a lot of people look down and nose it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's the Harry Cooperness of it. Yeah. It's the idea that, you know, I, because I don't relate to any of it, you're not allowed to yeah. either. Because mm-hmm. I think that horror should just be for entertainment. You also have to think that horror is only entertainment. Yeah. Well, mind your own business. Mind your business. Yeah. If you don't like it like that, watch, you know, Dumb and Dumber 2 and <laughs> carry on with your life. Just leave yeah. us alone. <laughs> Shall we give some awards out? Oh, yes. So, biggest queen, I've given it to Helen Cooper. <laughs> I also said Helen Cooper. She has a lot to put up with. She does. She puts up with a lot (laughs) with old Harry. Um, I I specifically said Marilyn Eastman as well. I mean, credit for doing all the makeup as well as Mm. performing. And she also played the um, ghoul that eats the bug off the tree. I said Barbara just because she was giving damsel in distress and she, she was. <laughs> I mean, wow, the passing out, the catatonic state, the running, the running in the very beginning, her fighting for her life. Like that was actually, that gave me kind of like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Friday the 13th, running through the woods for your life. So for me, it, it has to be Barbara. Yeah. <laughs> 
biggest I did wish she took the jacket off. <laughs> yeah. that that, like on Drag Race, when you know there's a big reveal, I'm like, what is underneath that jacket? <laughs> uh, biggest gasp, I give it to Ben's death. Yeah, it's the ending. Yep. Uh, best dialogue, uh, I mean, is there any other choice other than they're coming to get you, Barbara? They're I coming had... to get you. <laughs> Sorry. I said something else. Oh, oh. I know, because I wanted to say that, but then I started thinking about it, and Ben says, I'm not afraid of the dead, it's the living that I'm scared of, and I think that's pretty solid. That is a great line of dialogue. That is, actually, yeah. yeah. Did you have the coming to get you, Barbara? Yeah, I went yeah. there coming to get you, Barbara. We were, yeah, we were those guys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's camp. I have Barbara fainting after being slapped. <laughs> Barbara's melodrama, definitely. Yeah. I said the the nude zombie because yes, I mean really, especially when Chris puts it into perspective of like yeah. they were probably just showering and then they got eaten <laughs> and like it doesn't get campier than that. I think. <laughs> and uh, finally, our category specific to our nasty November episodes for the nastiest moment. I've got a tie, so. I've gone with in the context of um, a scary horror film and at this time and what they maybe could have stretched that to make this a video nasty. I've got the ghouls eating the guts, but also I've got it tied with, I mean, from our perspective, I'm sure, you know, nastiest moment is also got to go to Ben's death. Yeah. In, in terms of what makes a video nasty, I would say, it's the the entrails being eaten. Yeah. Uh, but what is you know, and I suppose it's such like biggest gasp. But the the most horrific moment would be the ending. Absolutely. I was thinking the gut scene or the um, corpse at the top of the stairs because yeah, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, it was like it wasn't just a skull and bones, but it was like a half-eaten face or mostly eaten face. So you could still see yeah. the skeletal structure of the face, but like some of the flesh too, which I thought was because even now I don't think I see that in a lot of horror movies unless it's well no. Eli Roth or Damien doing Terrifier. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Uh, for ratings, I give it 10 dull conversations with Barbara about her experience at the graveyard with Johnny out of 10. <laughs> I gave it 10 times that Barbara could have helped someone but decided not to <laughs> out of 10. Um, I gave it a... Hold on. I, I was a little confused with this, so I was like, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? I'm going to say um, I give it a eight out of 10 of Harry just trying to be a white man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, masterpiece, trash to be trash, basic or a camp or a bunch of fun. It is a masterpiece. Masterpiece. Absolutely masterpiece. And if you want to check it out yourself, if you haven't already, what are you doing? It's available on DVD, Blu-ray, Video On Demand, Shudder, Plex, and Pluto TV, and basically anywhere. It's public domain. Like, just go watch it. <laughs> um, a warning to those who wish to watch Night of the Living Dead. Um, be careful that you don't yeah. get the really shitty... The colorized. Colorized, <laughs> or the animated, or the 3D, oh. or the one where they've inserted random scenes. <laughs> 
um, be very careful. I don't wish to sound like a snob, but um, I do believe the Criterion Collection Blu-ray is the best version to yeah. get. <laughs> and if you enjoyed this, I recommend checking out the remake, which is damn near perfect and mm. very close to being as good. It, yeah, yeah, I agree. Love that film. Um, I think you should check out The Living Dead at Manchester Morgue, uh, which is a rather British zombie film, highly influenced by uh, Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. I said this is a more modern movie and definitely campier. Uh, the Dead Don't Die. It came out in 2019, I think, 2018, one of the two. So good. Adam Driver um selena gomez just a bunch of random like big blockbuster type of names um and it's just so yeah so campy i love it wow <laughs> and if you would like to talk to us about that living dead if you're a fan then we are horror court trash over on facebook instagram and tiktok and horror court trash on twitter i'm dead at gaz92 on letterboxd gazmo205 on instagram and gazcruz92 on twitter I'm Chris Barker 823 on Instagram and Letterboxd. And if you're new to this podcast, we have a festival dedicated entirely to minority filmmakers making new horror films. And that is Gasp Horror Fest across all social media. We're accepting submissions for next year. Give us a rate, review and subscribe on iTunes like a follower of else. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Avery. This has been an absolute blast and one of my favourite episodes, I can tell you that right now. <laughs> oh my gosh, of course. Anytime. I had a great time as well. I'm so glad I finally got to watch Night of the Living Dead because it was, it's not that I didn't want to watch it, but it's just like one of those movies that it's on my list. But then I'm like, oh, wait, but there's this movie that just came out. I have to watch this. And yeah. so it's just, it keeps moving down and down and down on the list. But I'm finally glad you all gave me the opportunity to watch it. Yeah. Um, trust us, we can relate. Our watch lists are ridiculous. <laughs> I'm kind of the opposite. I kind of, a new film comes out and I'm like, no, but it's a really old film I want to watch. <laughs> <laughs> um, where can we find you on social media and your band Rebound Horror Podcast? Uh, you can find me on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, and Substack if you're a newsletter person. It's so fun. I love typing on my little keyboard. Uh, you can find me on all those platforms at Your Horror Podcast. That is You Are Horror Podcast because it's where you get all your horror needs. Go and check it out. We will be back on Friday where we'll be discussing another one of the greatest horror films ever made. We'll be discussing John Carpenter's The Thing as part of our Original Versus Remake episode, where we'll also be discussing The Thing from Another World. And next week, we will be finishing Nasty November with an episode on Norman J. Warren's Terror with returning guest Ben Simpson. Very excited yes. for that one. Very British, very British film. Let's see if we can yeah. uh, talk about some British politics. Good, good films, yeah. Good films all the way through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Before we get into Christmas and discuss trash. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, we'll be back same time, same place on Friday. Bye. Bye.